Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. And we have an old friend back with us, Brenda Bird, uh, who is president and CEO of Best North Carolina, Best NC. And we'll talk, we'll tell you what that is in just a moment. Brenda used to be a frequent visitor on our program and then COVID-19 came along and we haven't had her on in a while. So we want to catch up. But uh, before we open the mic to uh, Brenda, we'll say this, that Best North Carolina is an organization of, of business leaders who are uh, trying to aid and assist in improving our educational systems in North Carolina. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan coalition of over 1,000 business leaders. And uh, they have, uh, I will let Brenda tell you the rest of the story uh, as we introduce her. So Brenda, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you. And tell us a little bit about Best North Carolina before we move on to the topics at hand. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be back. Um, Best NC is, stands for Business for Educational Success and Transformation in North Carolina. We are a coalition of over 100 business leaders, such as yourself, who are deeply committed to education in North Carolina. Uh, we take that opportunity to lean in on, on big issues in education. We're not really dickering around the edges. <laughs> we're, we're working on systemic issues. How can we make North Carolina's education system the best in the nation? Well, COVID-19 came along, uh, interestingly enough, uh, about a year and three or four months ago, and it sort of changed a lot of things. Um, some of the things actually have turned out to be good lessons. We've learned some things from COVID-19 that might help uh, in uh, the future. Uh, so let, let's focus a little bit, first of all, on how the school systems reacted to the basic shutdown that we had or the slowdown or whatever we want to call it. And then we'll talk about some lessons that we learned maybe uh, that, or that will uh, be beneficial in the future. So first of all, how, did the, do you, how do you feel like the North Carolina school systems reacted to the crisis? And did they do a good job and make good decisions? Uh, wow. Well, we have a big state, one of the biggest in the nation, and 115 school districts with about 20, over 2,600 schools. So what's interesting about how they responded to COVID-19 is how different one district responded from another or even schools within the school district. So what I'm looking forward to is we're going to have some data from the end of year assessments and is really figuring out what worked and what didn't work. I think we're going to have some really interesting results when we find out whether or not, for example, empowering principals to make the right decision versus having district-wide decision-making. We're going to, I think we're going to get a sense of what worked and what didn't work, but I'm hearing pretty wide variations. I have a I, I talked about a, a rock star principal in Edgecombe County. I've shared with you before, Matt Smith is one of our principals of the year, Matt Bristow Smith. And they, when they got the word on a Saturday that they'll be closing schools, at least temporarily, uh, back in March of last year, he had laptops in students' hands by Tuesday. He had food going out to students by Tuesday. We had other districts that didn't even start surveying on technology for four or five weeks. So the difference between a school district where the principals are really empowered to do the right thing for their students versus districts where they really were struggling to, do, to kind of micromanage the process, I, I think we're going to find that, that schools that empowered their principals and their teachers to do the right thing, I think they're gonna, we're going to see that they're doing better. Well, it's interesting because in business, uh, we, we learned a lot of good lessons. Of course, we yeah. had some setbacks. 
uh, was basically a disruption, but we learned a lot of new tricks, including the fact, like in this broadcast, we're doing this by Zoom. I mean, right. you don't you have to drive the car to come to the studio. We can do it by Zoom, and it's uh, this has enabled us to have uh, more frequent vi visitors and uh, um, people who are, have busy schedules are able to work us in now on this program. And so we learned some good lessons. I, uh, so on the whole, um, how, what's your general feeling? Is Has this set the kids back? And if so, how much? Yeah, I think we're going to find that it set kids back. I think there are some things that are good to your point. I think we've exposed some like broadband access issues, technology access issues, things that we should have known about before that we haven't hadn't necessarily paid as much attention to, although North Carolina is better on broadband than most states. Um, but but I think what we're going to find is overall that remote learning doesn't work well for most kids. There are definitely, we all know, children in our lives who have enjoyed being home or even thrived from being home. But overall, when you look at how um, online schools work, especially for younger kids, um, kindergarten through middle school, I think we're going to find that that kids are overall going to be going to have fallen behind. Um, and the gaps that we've seen between, say, high income students and lower income students or various parts of the state, I think we're going to see that those gaps are widening. Um, and so it's time to, to step up and really address those issues as we head back into what what should be the new normal. As you look around the nation, uh, were there states that actually uh, did a better job, in your opinion, than we did in North Carolina, or were we about par for the course? I really think that we're par for the, the course. Um, I think some of our districts decided to have more access to students than some parts of the country, but there's not one that stands out as being particularly good or particularly bad, you know, I think we'll see in the, there's this, this national assessment that happens every two years. I think we're going to start seeing um, some results with those data when they come out, but there's, there's nothing that's sort of standing out as, as a state that did particularly well or, or particularly bad. Now we are reading a lot about uh, parents having some, a number of parents have real concerns about whether or not their uh, school age children, especially K through 12, uh, should take the vaccine. And so for the most part, many of our students will be going back to the classroom uh, without vaccines. Uh, we also, as I understand, the teachers have not been mandated to, to take the vaccine. Is that correct? Yeah, they're not mandated as far as I've, I know so far. So what do you, what's your opinion of that? Should we uh, be looking harder at requiring at least teachers to have vaccine or uh, and then, of course, uh, what about the mask? That's, you know, the kids clearly wearing a mask all day long is not a good thing. <laughs> Anybody really. Right. Well, I think um, the, the findings are pretty clear that in-person is far better for, for kids across the board. Um, whether or not it's with a mask or without a mask, I think that's important to have those conversations. The CDC is now recommending that kids who can't get vaccinated, which are, you know, kids under under 12, and for those who choose not to get vaccinated in the older grades, that they should wear a mask. Um, and then that's causing confusion, right? Because you, you can't really ask them for their vaccination card. It's hard to provide evidence. So, so then now they're kind of pivoting back to the idea that every student should wear a mask. Um, I think we're, 
it's going to get more complicated before it gets easier. I think as we see this Delta variant, we even heard from the governor this last week and, and Secretary Cohen um, that they're kind of upping the, the conversation on mask wearing for the fall. What I, I hope won't happen is closing schools or going back to remote. I think as you look at uh, the situation with children, I have a, a high school aged um, uh, student in my household and the, the social aspect of school is really important for these kids. It's not just the learning the A's, B's and C's and, and sitting through a Zoom class to, to learn about history, but it's the conversations in the hallways. It's the time during on the on the playground or in, in lunchtime. So we, I really hope that regardless that that people will will send their kids to school and that our schools will stay open for the, the school year. The data shows pretty clearly that the mental health and the educational benefits of being in school far outweigh the risks. Broadband, of course, is something that is very much in the news and it seems to be something that is very much, uh, has much uh, backing both from uh, both sides of the aisle. This seems to be uh, an issue that is not not that is not necessarily partisan because there's support both for Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, yep. liberals, and so forth. Uh, have you seen any evidence where there was uh, uh, so far where the broadband access proved to be more successful than those areas where they didn't have access to computer learning? So you know, I think what it did is it exposed that our broadband problem for education is not in the school building. The problem is that getting to the households, right? And and North Carolina had already designed a seven-year strategy to get that last mile um, broadband access. They were already a year or two into it when when COVID nineteen hit. So what we're seeing is this COVID funding is starting to be invested in broadband and sort of elevating. And I'm hoping. In, in increasing that timeline or, or shortening that timeline so that we can get broadband sooner. The, the, the issue here is not remote learning per se, it's kids have homework to do, right? They have lessons that they need to learn when they get home. And so regardless of whether we're in a remote learning situation like we've been for the last year, or if it's just a matter of homework or doing research or writing your applications for college, kids need broadband access. And, and of course, that's also tied to, to employment, right? We know that their parents need broadband access as well to apply for jobs and in many cases do their jobs. So it's, it's definitely something that's good for the economy. Um, it's good for our state and, and it could be a really positive result that's coming out of the COVID funding and the COVID challenges. I suspect in some cases, uh, the use of uh, especially highly uh, specialized teaching, especially in the sciences, where I'm I'm sure that some of the small school districts really have trouble recruiting qualified teachers, that this is also an opportunity for those students to have exposure to some really good uh, uh, educational access that they might not have otherwise. Yeah, there, there's a there's some research being done on that. What What's funny is when the the VHS tapes came out, right? There was the same conversation that let's just record that really great teacher and then stick them in a, on, a, on a screen in front of the classroom. And we found that that doesn't work. So um, obviously technology is much more interactive. We can use Zoom, but they're, they're still experimenting with how do you take that concept of a great teacher and zoom them in, but maybe pair them with a with a on-site teacher. There's a, an organization called Public Impact in Charlotte. I'm sorry, Chapel Hill. That's doing 
research around how do, how do you do that or or do you use that kind of that remote teacher as a teacher trainer right do you use them to help elevate the teachers that are within those communities so there's a there's a there's a lot of conversation and it's really up in the air we're not sure yet whether or not it works particularly well to do remote learning of any kind did the students learn who were basically on the ban or, or basically at home, did they learn to communicate with other students uh, either through Zoom or some other way? Was there was there much of that going on? Well, I think I think for it's <laughs> what I hear is the teachers learned it more. Right. So the teachers who maybe were afraid of technology or or learning groups, they had to jump into the deep end and learn all these technologies and create breakout groups and so I'm hearing more about, you know, teachers probably moved forward 10 years in their technology skills when they, they would have taken a lot more, a lot more time. So they, I'm hearing more about the teachers. I think kids today are such digital navigators. Uh, I don't think that was as much of a problem for the, for the students as I'm, I'm hearing teachers really celebrating their new, their new skills. Well, we're, we want to spend the next segment talking about teachers because this is so much of a focus of improving the school system is attracting and keeping good teachers in our system. And we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Eastmakers and our very special guest, Brenda Burke, who's president and CEO of Best NC. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. <coughs> When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with our guest, Brenda Berg, President and CEO of Best NC. Best NC is an advocacy organization, a nonpartisan, a nonprofit organization that uh, has as its function improving education in North Carolina, uh, trying to uh, move North Carolina up the ladder. And our goal is ultimately to be the best in the nation. And uh, we, I think, uh, through the efforts of not only Best NC, but a lot of efforts, we're making a lot of progress. But it always seems like it always comes back to attracting and keeping good teachers. Uh, are we making any progress in attracting good teachers? And then uh, once we get them, are we doing any better of keeping good teachers? 
Well, this has been the heart of the work of Best NC. And if anyone's interested, you can go to bestnc.org and look at our educator innovation plan. Because if we don't have great teachers, it's like any any business. If you don't have great people doing the work, um, it, you know, the outcomes, we can play around the edges. But um, educators and school leaders, principals are, are the, the most important factors in, in student achievement. And so when we came into this work, we really started in 2014, 2015. We were looking at the state of the teaching profession and we're sort of average. North Carolina has a, a nutrition rate for teachers that's sort of average, uh, vacancy rates that's sort of average. Um, but we want to be the best in the nation. And to do that, we really need to, to become, you know, significantly above average, both in how we recruit teachers, but then the experience of the teachers in the school building. Um, so we are seeing some, some big improvements in North Carolina. Um, we are starting to find new ways to recruit teachers. There's the, the new teaching fellows program that's focused on STEM and special education, which is one of our highest needs areas. Um, we recently launched an initiative. It's actually, sorry, go ahead. But before you go and talk about that program for just a moment about the, uh, program you were just mentioning. So Teaching Fellows um, has actually was around for a long time. It sort of was 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 um, shuttered and then came back a few years ago. Um, that is a scholarship, a full ride for two to four years, depending on if somebody's getting a master's degree or an undergraduate degree in teaching. Um, and it's in um, six institutions, the UNC system institutions, where you can, it, as long as you're studying to be a science, math, or special education teacher you get a, a scholarship for all four, all, all of those years um, as an incentive to, to move into the teaching profession. Um, and importantly, if it's a, it's a payback you, for a certain number of years to sort of pay back that forgivable loan, but that payback time is cut in half if teachers serve in hard to staff schools. So we really wanna get those science and, and math and special education teachers where they're needed the most. It's been a, it's, it's produces about 160 teachers a year. What about the interest in teaching? Uh, has Is that going up or is it about the same? In other words, kids come out of high school and they go off to college and uh, most of them go off to college with uh, some idea of, of what they might want to major in. Uh, are we finding that that interest level in teaching is as high as it should be? So the the interest the first um, starting teachers pathway from that what you just described that kind of four-year college student that has been declining for many years in North Carolina but across the country this is a kind of a problem across the nation where students are, are coming into college and they're not thinking of teaching as a viable profession at, at the same time uh, mid-career professionals maybe even early probably more likely early career professionals are much more interested in coming into teaching. Now we can theorize on why that is, but in the last five years, we've had a 50% increase in the number of teachers who are coming, what we call residency or lateral entry, where they have a four-year degree, they went into another industry and they're coming back and going into teaching. Um, and when I say a 50% increase, I don't mean from like two to 3%, I mean from 20 something to about a third of our teachers are coming in through this, this pipeline. And what we're hearing from those candidates is, one, they didn't realize that the job that they were kind of aiming for through college was as unemployable as it was, right? Teaching profession, if you go into teaching, you're very likely going to get a job. 
Um, and two, I, I think they just didn't realize that teaching actually is particularly on the front end, I would argue, doesn't pay as well on the, the kind of the back end of the profession. But starting teacher pay is somewhere between thirty-five and forty thousand dollars plus benefits for, you know, someone one year out of college, and that actually is more competitive than I think college college students think it is. Um, so we're finding these people coming into the workforce for a couple of years and then reverting back and entering the teaching profession. Um, that's a great. That's great, but I wish we could catch them earlier. So we've started an initiative called Teach NC. Um, that's really trying to recruit both into both of those pipelines, right? Those 18 year olds who are thinking of teaching as a profession, but also those who are, who want to come back into the profession. If anyone listening knows somebody in their life who wants to become a teacher, have them go to teachnc.org. They can get all of their questions answered. They can get personalized support to get into the profession. Uh, and we're finding that that approach of just providing better information and better support is is working and in the first year of the initiative, we had around 675 people tell us that they went into the profession, either going into a school of education or going in right into the classroom through one of those residency programs. Um, and so just that, that extra bit of information, that extra bit of help um, is helping to recruit candidates into the profession. And, and it's, it's an amazing profession. And sometimes you just need that extra nudge you need uh, to try it on in the classroom, or you need to see what the pay is, or see what the employability is, and, and we're trying to help with that. I know the universities have been fortunate to have the ability to bring in professionals, ad hoc type situations where they teach a course, maybe a semester, or maybe a course a year, or something of this nature. Has this uh, model been tried in high schools? Is it feasible that we could consider it as a part of a solution? There's, there's some discussion back and forth between community college and high school, particularly for um, English and math for specific subject areas, uh, where it makes sense that it, it's transferable, but you start getting into the younger grades and middle grades. There's, there's a real need for what we call classroom pedagogy. Um, and I, I just talked about the, the what huh. is. so classroom Explain pedagogy what. is right. How do you, how do you manage the classroom? How do you put the coursework together? How do you, you know, provide rigorous coursework selections? Um, it's, it, it, there's a lot to teaching. I mean, it is a high skilled profession, right? There are things you need to learn to be a good teacher. And what we're finding kind of as evidence of that being true is that these lateral entry teachers are, are jumping into the classroom without that pedagogical training. Um, and they're not doing as well as teachers who are getting that training. So we're trying to figure out how can you, whether it's like you said, sort of an adjunct teacher or somebody who's really moving into the profession, how can we do a better job of getting them prepared um, and not just throwing them in the classroom. Just because you're really good at science does not mean you're yet ready to teach science. Um, I think we have to, you know, recognize that teaching is a profession. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, and there's much more to it than just having content knowledge. The school calendar, it seems there's a lot of ex experimentation in school calendars, including year-round schools and Many districts have both year-round and traditional calendars. Does this complicate the situation for teachers, and do they have a preference of which one they generally prefer, or is it just a mixed bag of tricks? 
It, you know, it's funny. It's it's sort of like students. I'm hearing from teachers. They either really love the year-round model, or they they love the 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 interesting thing about year-round is you're still in the same number of school days, right? You still have 180 days oh. of school, just spread out across the school year. Um, so it's a really a, a personal preference. What is interesting about our calendar in North Carolina is we, ha- if you are a traditional school, you there are restrictions on when you can start your school year. It can't start until August 25th and when you end your school year. And so districts are really begging for more flexibility. Um, those dates don't align, for example, with community colleges. So if you want to have an early college that's connected or or have the career and college promise programs, there's a there's a real case to be made for schools to be able to start more in alignment, for example, with the community college system. This has been a, an ongoing debate between the uh, travel and tourism industry, which would like to keep kids <laughs> at the beach. Um, and I get it. I understand that. But I think our kids need to be um, in the classroom as much as they need to be in the classroom, according to education experts. Um, so, well, we 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 hope to see some more progress on having a little bit more flexibility in the coming years. Well, a number of foreign nations are actually requiring more days in school. Mm-hmm. Is 180 days the right amount? And how do, is that the universal across the country, 180 days? Or is that, the, are we ahead or behind most days? Yeah, we're pretty the much, the, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty standard across the country. There are countries that do more. There are countries that do less. Um, and I think what we're finding is quality over, over quantity. And what we're finding in countries that are doing particularly well is not necessarily consistency in their calendar or, or um, in the number of hours per day. What we're finding is a real emphasis on teacher quality. It gets back to your first question, right? If, if, we, if we really prioritize having great teachers in the school building and fantastic principals that are leading them, most everything else kind of ends up coming out in the wash. Um, it, it, you know, I'd rather have a, a great teacher and a chalkboard <laughs> and, uh, and then, then spend a lot of energy around kind of the, the extras. Uh, tell me this about the length of the school day. Uh, is there been much experimentation as far as how long the kids need to stay in school in a given day and when it becomes counterproductive for them to stay longer? Yeah, there actually has been some a good bit, particularly around kids who are underperforming, who really need some extra help. Um, and also, uh, you know, there are a lot of families who, who simply can't be home at 2.20 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so having an extended school day for power, what we call power tour, tutoring, really coming in and providing support, but also just that social interaction and a safe place to, to be, um, a, a safe place to have you know, snacks after school. So extending the school day, not necessarily just for academics, but for um, an all around kind of 360 view of, of education. We're, we're, we do see that that's very helpful, particularly for students who are, are struggling. We're going to get another topic we're going to get in a little later on is athletics, because that's very much in the news now. <laughs> and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, we'll also, I want to get into uh, talking about uh, the various preschool programs that we have going on in North Carolina and how that's affected. We want to talk about dropouts, and uh, we also want to talk about charter school, and we want to talk about homeschooling. So we've got lots <laughs> of things we want to talk about. Our guest is Brenda Berg. And I, I tell you what, we've got just enough time, I think, to handle 
homeschooling right now. You've got about a minute. So t- tell us your view on homeschooling. So homeschooling was, um, I was the, the, the third largest district in the state before COVID. I think there was an increase of something like 30,000 students have r- reported in as homeschooled. Uh, and I, that we're looking at numbers that are, I think, around 160,000 students now. Um, so homeschooling is here to stay. It's been a, a, a big part of education in North Carolina. And there's there's some conversations now about how can you do sort of hybrid where students can take maybe one or two classes in school or do career and college promise. And to your point about athletics, can they participate in athletics? So there's I think there's more of a welcoming conversation about if 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 families are choosing to homeschool, how can we ensure that those students are getting the best possible academic outcomes, but also that social and emotional support that the public school system can offer. Our guest is Brenda Berg. She's the president and CEO of Best NC. Uh, and we will be back to talk about those various and sundry topics that I mentioned just a moment ago when we come back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. So you stay tuned. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest uh, uh, is the person we turn to very often for the very best information on where North Carolina stands in the area of educating our youngsters. And uh, her name, of course, is Brenda Berg, as we've introduced her prior in the prior segments. She's the uh, president and CEO of this wonderful organization called Best NC to reintroduce uh, the organization. It's a group of uh, uh, about 100 business leaders across the state that are, are interested in making education in North Carolina the best in the nation. I think what we found out is that industry and business leaders realize how important education is. And so they are, generally speaking, extremely supportive of the educational uh, needs of our state. And uh, they're always pushing for uh, the things that will make our system better. And one of the things they did was form this organization to do some research. And Brenda Berg, who's the president, is the, the person who is doing all that research. Well, we want to talk a little bit about the importance of principles because one of the things that you pointed out, and I have seen this myself time and time again, 
that when you see an outstanding school, very often it follows that there's an outstanding principal of that school. Teachers seem to be interested in working with principals who are sharp and are interested and innovative in many cases. And uh, that same principal can leave a school and go to one that's in trouble. And sure enough, short time later, that school's turning around. So principals okay. are very, very important to the school system. Where do we stand, Brenda, in, in our principal situation? That's uh, you. You said it so well. When I, I'll have people call me and say, "Hey, I'm, I'm, we're trying to decide between this house and this house next to these two schools." And my kid, you know, four years old, and these are the two high schools that they'll be going to. I say, "You don't know how that school is going to perform because you don't know who the principal will be when you get there." Right? The the temperature of a school can change in one year, based on on a principal. Teachers um, will will come and go on the on the quality of the principal. So. We've really leaned in as an organization, and 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 you mentioned that we do a lot of research. I'm going to shout out to my team, um, the business community invested in Best MC because they wanted to make sure we had great data and research behind everything that we're advocating for. We're not sort of doing this on the fly, um, and so if anyone's interested in that data, they can find it at bestmc.org. Um, you'll also find a lot of information about where we have leaned in on principles. Um, they're so critically important, and we've looked at um, and focused on a couple of different elements of principles. The first is, do we have the right principles? Uh, we have a new initiative over the last couple of years that's now it's called the Principal Fellows Program, um, and it's per, it's now producing about 40% of the principals in the state, and it's it's completely reimagining who is getting recruited to become these critical school leaders. Um, how are they being prepared? And are they being prepared specifically to go into high need schools? Are we getting the principals prepared to do the work that really needs to be done most? So I'm really proud of that work. Um, second thing we did is we also looked at principal pay. North Carolina had the lowest principal pay in the nation four years ago, five years ago. And now um, with a big push from the business community, we had the largest investment in principal pay in the history of North Carolina. And we are now third in the Southeast. Um, just a bit behind Virginia and Georgia. So we're going to push a little bit harder <laughs> to, to beat them out. But it's also a, the new principal pay model will also compensate principals for going to the schools where they're needed most. So there's all sorts of opportunities now for uh, a really outstanding principal to go to a, a school where they're needed most. And then the third thing that we we focused on is, you know, what is the responsibility of a principal? I think back in the day, you had a very limited scope, but now between social media and the principals, sort of the, the, the spokesperson of the community, and we're expecting our principals to also basically prepare all the teachers in the school building. So the, the, the scope of their responsibility has gotten kind of out of hand. Um, and so we're working, there are about 15 school districts in the state that are now working on a model called advanced teaching roles, where teachers are actually teaching each other. Um, and working much more collaboratively and relieving some of that instructional leadership responsibility from principals. It's a little wonky, but all of those things matter, right? Any single one of those aspects are good to have, the right people, the right compensation, the right experience in the building, but it's really important that we're looking at, at all three of those um, aspects of the, the principalship. Well, principals, of course, are basically managers, and we found in business that very often someone who's really good at, uh, well, let's just say a, 
advertising salesperson, a, a great advertising salesperson does not necessarily make a great uh, sales manager. That's right. Uh, is this the case with principals and teachers? Uh, and how does a teacher decide or a person decide, hey, I'd rather be a principal than a teacher? That's right. Well, that's such a good point. So you're absolutely right. Not everyone is really set out to be a principal. And in the past, the only option a teacher had if they wanted to move up, because teachers are passionate about their job, right? They want to help children. And, and more often than not, a teacher wants to become a principal because they want to have a greater impact on more children. And that's fantastic. The problem is that shouldn't be their only option. We shouldn't have their only option be you're a great teacher, so now leave the classroom and run the building. Um, with advanced teaching roles, we've now created uh, several pathways where a teacher can maybe just take on more students and get actually paid for it instead of just doing it out of the kindness of their heart or become an instructional leader for other teachers, again, without taking all the administrative responsibilities of the building. And that lets the principal focus on on the, the work at hand with running the building and staffing and, and all of that. So. You're right. I think we need to have a much more nuanced in, in the past. It's sort of been teacher or principal, and those are your only two options. Uh, we need to put more options in, in front of them. And it's, it is, it's an, it's an important, it's a critically important strategy for our state. If we did nothing else, um, but impact the principals in the state of North Carolina, um, we'll, we'll be doing, we'll be doing well. The one thing I think we don't do well in, in North Carolina, and, and this is true for a lot of states, is we don't empower the principals with the budget. So imagine if you, for example, you went to one of your managers and said, you can have you know, X number of employees and no flexibility on whether they maybe had fewer, but they pay them more or more, but they pay them less or different, you know, different um, choices to be made. Our principals are really not empowered with that flexibility. And that's something that I'd I'd like to see us investigate in the future is how can we make more decisions about students' resources at the school level. There's not one principal who would deny school supplies, for example, right, within their school building if they if they knew that that was the most important vector. I, I talked with a principal recently who was, he said, you know, just a couple thousand dollars and we could hire a, a janitor. We've been struggling to hire a janitor. And I, I looked at his budget, his operating budget is $9 million a year. So can't you find any money? Nope, I have no flexibility within that money. If you think about one thing that affects the well-being of the students and safety, right? And the well-being of, of your teachers within the school building to have a principal tell me that they can't even find a couple thousand dollars within their $9 million budget to do something so important. It's, it's kind of, it's heartbreaking and frankly, it's unprofessional. I have to tell you a story of, about my situation. Uh, when I was in high school, there was this uh, one particular student, and she may be listening, so I have to be careful not to mention her name. But uh, she was obviously very, very smart. I started with her in the first grade and went all the way through school with her. Very, very smart. And I think she actually got bored in school, and so she was constantly in trouble. One uh, innocent things, I mean, just but but she was always in trouble. And she. Uh, Anyway, fast forward 30 years later, we go back to our first high school reunion, and I hadn't seen her during that period of time, so I walked up to her and said, you know, you were so smart in high school, I, I want to know what you did. She said, you won't believe it. I said, what is it? She said, I'm a high school principal. I said, <laughs> what? But I spent so much time in the principal's office, I just got used to it. 
<laughs> what she did say was she said it was so beneficial. She said, we, I will have a student in uh, that is, I have the teachers referred to me for a discipline problem. And they'll start off telling a story and said, wait a minute, let me finish this story. I know the rest of this right. story. Right. But uh, anyway, I thought it was interesting. And, but uh, I'm sure she, and she was, and won several awards as being an outstanding principal. So they come from all walks of life. I hear so, that from uh, teachers as well, that, you know, that if you, if you had to have grit, right, that you, you didn't do so well in high school, but you really had grit and persevered, you know, or, or something clicked after high school. I hear all the time that our, some of our best teachers, you know, they, they feel like that grit, that, that understanding of where those kids are coming from is, has really helped them be, be outstanding teachers. We don't seem to hear quite as much about discipline in the schools as we seemingly heard maybe four or five years ago, is discipline basically a, a problem that we have made some progress on? You know, I, I, I still hear a lot. I mean, I think with not being in the building much for the last you know year and a half, we're, we're not hearing so much, but I do hear a lot from teachers, their, their concerns about discipline and, and kind of the inconsistencies of where they, what they can and cannot do from school to school. And again, that comes down to principal leadership a lot of the time. Um, and so, you know, discipline um, and and positive behavioral modification is one of the, the, the terms that's out there. I think schools are really looking for ways to really help students instead of punish students. And that's, that's a good thing. So I do think we're seeing some progress, but it is something that we hear from teachers a lot that if they don't have those kind of those those outlets or their positive support, finding that balance between a student who's really disrupting the room. Um, you don't really want to send them home because that's going to, they're just going to sit at home or, or be out on the streets, but you really want them in the classroom disrupting the, the classroom. So there's still a lot of conversation about that. Um, and there's, you know, some disproportionality in, in particularly low-income kids and, and students of color being disciplined differently um, from their from their peers. So, you know, what what's that about? Is that coming from their experiences at home? Is that coming from perceptions of the teachers? So I think there's some really important and difficult conversations being had around discipline, but um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can have some of those, continue to have those, those conversations and make progress. Athletics very much in the news, uh, especially on the college level with the new court ruling on name, image, and likeness, and uh, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. I don't, I don't know how they can differentiate between a college student and a high school student as far as income from name, image, and likeness. I, how, how do you think this will turn out on the high school level? This is definitely not in my wheelhouse, but I am hearing the same thing. I have a, a college athlete, um, high schooler, and, and we're hearing that that all of that's going to push down. And, and to some extent with social media, I mean, high school students are making money off their image all the time. Um, so now extending that to athletes, I, I think we'll see it happen. Um, it's, it's going to be the wild west for a while, I'm sure. There's a lot of money out there in, in social media. Again, athletes are not athletes. Well, it's, uh, it's, of course, there's so many questions about it uh, that, uh, if anything was disrupted by COVID-19, the athletic uh, programs yeah. of most high school was most affected. Uh, and uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how we crank back up and get the athletic programs going again. 
Um, in the next segment, we want to talk about uh, parental involvement in schools and how parents can work with educators to improve the situations. I want to touch a little bit, if you will, uh, and be thinking about this on charter schools because I, for one, am still not sure that I fully understand where charter schools fit in and, and how we gauge whether they're successful or not. And then, of course, the final thing we want to talk about in the last segment of the program is any legislation that is uh, uh, on the uh, agenda, either at the state level, the North Carolina General Assembly, or on the national level at the uh, Congress. Uh, and we'll do all of that when we return with our guest, Brenda Berg, who's the president and CEO of Best North Carolina, Best NC. We'll be back right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it. 10 years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Brenda Berg is our guest. She's the president and CEO of BestNC.com. Oh, and by the way, we're going to give you that uh, email address or the website address, bestnc.org. Uh, this is an organization that uh, is uh, funded and uh, organized by some 100 business leaders across the state. And their focus is on making education in North Carolina the best in the nation. We've left a number of things to this last segment. One of them I want to talk about because something I've sort of observed in my a long time. I mean, I'm almost as old as dirt now, Brenda, so you can understand this. This comes from a long experience. The schools that seem to do well usually have very interested parents. Uh, how do we get more parental involvement in a way that's positive and helps the school system and re rather than just being critical and being a part of the problem, not the solution? But we always say that the, the biggest in-school factor for student achievement is the teacher. And the reason we have that in-school in qualifier is that the biggest factor by far above all else on student achievement is their parental involvement. So you're absolutely right. There's a huge correlation between parental involvement and it, it actually mitigates almost anything else in terms of if you have a you know low-income student with strong parental involvement, they can really, they, it can do a lot to, to make sure those students are, are career and college ready. 
Um, how how can we increase it? I I, I think there's a there's a whole science behind behind this. I I actually go to how do they feel welcomed? We have a lot of families who, when they were kids and they were in school, they didn't feel welcome in school. They had a bad experience and they don't want to come into the school building. Um, we have immigrants who don't feel welcome um, for various reasons. And, and so preparing our principals and our teachers to really think of parents as part of the solution and really welcoming them into the school building is important. And it, it's hard because we also have, you know, we also have parents who are asking teachers to change grades or to not discipline their children. And so there's that tension between parents acting as good stewards um, and, and teachers and principals kind of being ready to welcome them. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. I think it's actually gotten sort of, you know, we have the, this phrase, the Karens of the world. I think it's gotten harder at all levels to engage parents and, and more important than ever before. Um, so I just encourage families to, to always be involved in their, their students' um, uh, academics, both in encouraging them to go to the, to the best classes that they can and, and pursue the, the, the best opportunities within their school buildings and support them on getting their homework done. But there, there's also a line where, you know, again, teachers are professionals. And at some point, we need to, to definitely be trusting their judgment on, on what's happening within their classrooms. Let's talk a little bit about charter schools. This is, uh, I guess, basically charter schools came from a uh, interest in experimentation. How are our charter schools doing? What do you see as the future of charter schools? Yes, well, that's it is it, charter schools stem from the idea of giving schools and parents choice, right, and giving them more options. We have about 200 charter schools in North Carolina. That's a, an increase over the last several years from we had a cap on how many charter schools you could have. There are about 100 and I think about 120,000 charter school students. And, and if you mentioned, uh, we talked earlier in a different segment on homeschooling. We have about, well, we had 150,000 homeschool students last year and this year it surged to about 180,000 just to give some context. Um, in North Carolina, the charter schools tend to be more in urban areas. They tend to be, um, um, more more segregated than our traditional schools. They tend to be either more white or more black, um, more higher income or more lower lower income sort of sequestered within that school. Um, not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, particularly we have some really high poverty schools that are doing extraordinarily well. Um, we have in Henderson Collegiate is a charter school that's you know, targeting the local community. I think it's an 86% poverty rate. And those students are knocking it out of the park in terms of academics and, and college going rates. Um, so, you know, our charter schools can be pockets of innovation. Um, and um, again, they're, they're, they're here to stay. Parents really like those choices. I think one thing we hear, and, and this is the same with what, what's called opportunity scholarships, which are scholarships for particularly lo low income families to go to private schools. Um, we're, what we're hearing from those families is, you know, their, their child might be in a school with a 5% proficiency rate. And because of their income level, they don't have the choices that higher income families have. And so there's a real, whether or not we have found the right solution um, and whether or not there's enough accountability, which is my concern with, with um, scholarships, um, parents who want to be involved are, are begging for, for options. Um, if their if their local school is just not doing working well for their for their children. 
Now, most charter schools are private schools, but there is a difference between private schools and charter schools. And a lot of people, I think, get that those two sort of mixed in the same bag. Basically, uh, as I said there, I guess most charter schools are private schools, but basically there are also a lot of private schools that function very much like public schools, only they are uh, have a paid faculty and, and paid uh, tuition. So charter schools are 100%, well, I shouldn't say they can also raise extra funds, but charter schools are more like traditional schools than private schools. They're they have the flexibility of private schools. They can hire um, differently from traditional schools, um, but they have exactly the same accountability as our traditional schools. So if you go to uh, the Department of Public Instruction's website, you can pull up the same exact report card on a charter school that you can pull up on a traditional school. Private schools don't have that accountability. You can't find that data on private schools. And of course, private schools can carte blanche, you know, hire who they want, pay pay what they want, cover the curriculum that they want. Um, charter schools still have to take the same final exams, follow the same standards as, as traditional schools. So they're in some ways they're they're administrative administratively closer to private schools that they have more flexibility, but they are um, in terms of, of what they what they teach and how many hours and or how many days in the year and so on are, are much closer to traditional schools and their accountability. The other thing we said we would turn to in this segment, this last segment of our session with Brenda Bird, is legislation that is either on the agenda and being considered by the General Assembly or by the Congress. Uh, what are you watching and what do you think uh, uh, needs to be uh, on your agenda at the top of the list of things that you'd like to see happen? Oh, well. But like to see happen, um, we're definitely focusing on teacher recruitment as a top priority. I talked about in another segment, advanced teaching roles, expanding those opportunities for teachers to have career pathways. Those are things that we're working on, but I'm keeping an eye on uh, the, the massive surplus of funding that North Carolina has. We've really accrued a, a pretty big surplus in North Carolina on top of the fact that we have COVID money. So there's a real money grab right now. and um, and making sure that those funds are spent wisely, um, that we're investing in long-term investments. Uh, for example, I'd like to see us move away from what we have at the end of every school year. We have these bubble tests that take hours and hours for kids to complete. I'd like to see us move toward a more competency-based model where we, at any given point in time, we know which kids can add and which can multiply and who needs what in terms of their learning. So we're seeing um, the Department of Public Instruction and the state superintendent and, and somewhat in so far in the Senate budget and the, the governor's budget investments into these kind of long-term changes um, and these long-term investments. I'm, I'm hopeful about some of that, some of those investments. Um, on the other hand, um, teacher pay, I think, is going to be the, the issue where we have the most friction. We have the governor's budget that came out with a 5%, I think 5% year over year investment in teacher pay. The Senate budget came in at one and a half percent year over year. We expect the house to come in with something in the middle. Uh, and just to give you a couple of, of, of facts on that, we are behind Virginia and Georgia on teacher pay on average. If you're looking at the Southeast, um, our starting teacher pay went to $35,000 about five years ago and has not increased. 
Um, and because of a budget stalemate two years ago, our teachers haven't had a pay increase for two years. So there's a lot of, of, of reasons to invest in teacher pay this year. Um, the Senate, in addition to the, the pay increases, are looking at, I believe it's a $1,500 bonus, which I think is a, a really good way to use um, surplus funds for teachers who haven't had a pay increase in two years. Um, but there's also some conversation about, you know, rethinking how do we pay teachers? Um, you know, if you have an extraordinary teacher who's, who's really truly effective five years into their career, why should they have to wait 15 years to get to the top of the pay schedule? So I'm hopeful that this year they make some wise investments in teacher pay and then really look toward next year and, and the subsequent years to, to think differently about teacher pay. How do we attract more STEM teachers? You know, if you come out of a UNC system school right now, you make easily $10,000 more as a math major than a liberal arts major or an English major. So why aren't we considering paying our math teachers more so we can pull them out of that, that pipeline? Um, so I think teacher pay is gonna continue to be a, a conversation and I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get a little bit more, more creative um, on those, those conversations. But those are, those are sort of the, when we talk about the budget negotiations over the next couple of months, I think those are the topics that we're gonna be seeing the most. I think teacher pay is going to be the big one. <laughs> Linda, we've got about a minute and a half left, and we've gone this entire program without talking about our world-class community college system and how it, uh, what the role it plays in, uh, in the educational process, as well as the UNC system, which again is recognized across the country as one of the best. Uh, you might want to just mention how this folds into your work at Best NC. Well, the community colleges are extraordinary in North Carolina. We have 58 of them that almost everyone's within half an hour of a community college system. I'm so happy to share with you, this is actually since the last time we talked, but the community colleges are now offering official two plus two programs to become a teacher. So you can, and there's a brand new articulation agreement between the community colleges and the four-year institutions. So somebody who wants to get into teaching can do their first two years at a community college and then transfer straight into a UNC system school to become a teacher. And, and the community colleges are now looking to provide, we talked earlier about residency or lateral entry teachers. They need that, that word pedagogy. They need some training on how to become a teacher. And the community colleges are now working on ways to provide those, those um, candidates who already have a four-year college degree that extra effort, extra information they need on how to be a great teacher in the classroom. We call that post-baccalaureate training. So the community colleges um, in, in every industry are stepping up and they're just an incredible resource, but I'm extremely excited about what they're doing for, for the teacher pipeline and, and excited to see how that continues to roll forward in the next couple of years. They're, they're a great partner for our work, but they're just a, a, an incredibly important part of our, for our economy, a force for our economy in North Carolina. Linda, thank you so much for sharing with us. If you'd like more information about the work of this organization, you can go online to bestnc.org, bestnc.org, and find out a great deal more. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. If you'd like to hear a repeat of the broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Jason will have another guest for us again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, same time, same station, have a good week. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.